0: Welcome to Coffee and Geography, where my guests and I geek out about the world and everything on it, discovering that we are all geographers in some way, shape, or form. I'm your host, Kit, and my pronouns are they, them, or she, her. So settle down with a brew, hit that subscribe or follow button, and enjoy the listen. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Coffee and Geography. And this is got to be one of the best intro bios I've ever received from a guest you ready folks sit back and listen and then my guest is going to pick up straight from when i when I finish here we go it's almost like a story listen in the world before YouTube and the internet the opportunities to be inspired were different and rare uh, in 1995 Dr James Jackson gave the Royal Institution Christmas lectures called Earth an explorer's guide on a relatively new idea on plate tectonics and there a young boy in Birmingham had his view changed of the world forever. He didn't know he wanted to do geography or study the world, but it started a journey that would end up nearly three decades, decades later with his podcast. With the incredible support and guidance of geography teachers, David Reese read geography at university and postgrad before training to be a geography teacher in southeast London. He taught in schools for 13 years as a teacher and head department. He's been involved in UCAS, which is the university and colleges administration, admission system and support and uh, lots of school adventures before moving to initial teacher train education at Teach First in 2021. David, take it from there. I want to hear about Dr. James Jackson.
1: So uh, when I started my teacher training, I remembered this amazing set of videos that, that James Jackson had put together in the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. And back when I started, so we're talking, I don't know, 2005, 2006, something like that, the RI archive for all of their Christmas lectures wasn't complete. And it stopped in 1998. So there was no way of logging onto the website and getting the James Jackson lecture series. So I thought, well, you know, you might as well take a chance. And I Googled James Jackson, who was now Professor James Jackson at the University of Cambridge. And I found his email address and wrote to him and said, listen, Professor Jackson, you have no idea who I am. You, <laughs> we've never spoken. We've never met. But in 95, I watched your Christmas lectures and it changed the course of my academic journey. I'm now a geography teacher. I'd love to share that with my students. Thought nothing of it. Three, four days later in the post, I get an envelope from the University of Cambridge with a full set of the DVDs and a note from Professor Jackson that said, Keep exploring on your journey. Love, James.
0: That's I've lovely. still got the
1: note, right? Like that is the class of the man. But it's also, I think, a really lovely story about what geography does to people, even though you don't know it's happening at the time or when it's happening. Like some 20, 30 years later, you find out that that was the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: Well, what a story to start the podcast episode with. So, yeah, that's Excellent, David. So, folks, I have with me returning to coffee and geography, um, David Priest. So, um, and thank you so much, David, for doing that—that that little our first ever espresso in geography um, about the IPCC synthesis report. Um, so, folks, um, if you haven't listened to that yet, and uh, you know, please, please do go back just a, just a couple of months and you'll see that there's a an espresso and geography it's only a 15 minute little episode where me and david are talking about um the ipcc reports and things like that and now i'm absolutely thrilled and delighted that i'm now sitting david sitting down with david for a full episode finally <laughs> gotcha eventually right david you got your drink with you what are you drinking um while we're chatting
1: I'm actually drinking tea i I know it's coffee and geography, but for some reason i've never got i've never got the coffee thing i'm I'm just i can't i I don't mind the smell of it um we have it in the house it, it you know and the brewing of the nespresso machine is a lovely smell, but it's just it's too bitter for me maybe I don't know so' I'm a tea drinker, I'm afraid.
0: Any particular tea? Because, of course different blends taste different, but or is it just anything I'm, that's I'm as long as it's black? That,
1: no, I'm not that I'm not a tea snob. <laughs> um, I, I have friends who are and are really fussy about their tea, and I have friends who are very particular about loose leaf or whatever. I'm like, as long as it's in a cup, put me some milk in it, we'll be fine. I'm not that fussy about milk or tea bag first, doesn't bother me. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's
0: easy for me. Uh, it's it's simple. On behalf of all those tea snobs, no offense taken. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, no, we, I mean, we have, I mean, it's, as, as most folks know, if, if you're, if this is the first podcast episode you're listening to, folks, the, the name coffee and geography quite simply means basically a chat over a drink of us being geography geeks, um, really all it is, it just just seemed to roll off the tongue, you know, you needed some kind of catchy, kind of um, title but uh, (laughs) there we go good yeah I've got my tea as well David so you're you're in good company right I want to go back and loop back to um, a bit of your you know back to your bio but also where you locate because you said that you're a young uh, Birmingham lad but now you're in uh, southeast London you're in the the Greenwich area so um, the question I always like to ask my guests is quite simply this so it's um, your identity as a as a person maybe as a geographer now so you're in the South East London. It's a very iconic part of London, Greenwich, not just well and uh, and for for good reasons and for nefarious reasons, it's a very iconic part of the world as well um so but being that that Birmingham lad, what about you today and your identity has been formulated by both where you've lived and you've grown up in the past to where you are now? What makes David priest today in terms of geography?
1: Um it's a really interesting one because I think um my identity is much more um Birmingham probably than it is London. Um I I moved to London when I came here to do postgraduate work and Um, I moved down with a friend of mine who was starting to do her accountancy degree at the same time. And we we were looking for a flat share. We didn't really know what we were doing. We really didn't have an affinity for particular places. We were looking purely on price brackets and what was commutable because we both wanted to work in central London. Um, And and so we plonked on Southeast London by accident. And and I've kind of lived here ever since, really. Um, I've taught in Southeast London schools, but as an outsider, if you grow up in a school system, you know the rivalries. You know who you're supposed to like or dislike. You know who the football rivalry, or the rugby rivalry, or the oh we don't like them because like you know that as a child. When you come in as a as a teacher, you you don't necessarily pick that up unless you're involved in those things. I suppose if you're a sports coach, you know your rivalries. But I, I I'm not sporty in that sense. I never <laughs> a coach like that. So um. My identity is, uh, I always feel like a little bit of a guest or a visitor in London. Even when I go into work in places in London and, and, you know, Teach First's offices are in Greenwich Peninsula, they're they're right by the O2. I find it really difficult to not take my phone out and take photos every time I'm <laughs> in the because, like, yeah. oh my God, that's the O2. Like, oh my God, that's the River Thames. <laughs> I, f- I still find myself sort of feeling like a visitor and, and, I guess looking at the numbers and scaring myself with the numbers, I've actually lived in London for a greater part of my life than I ever lived in Birmingham. But but Birmingham is home. Birmingham is you know where my parents are and and where I grew up and and where kind of a lot of formative memories were for me and the things that shaped me. So yeah, I, there's always an interesting one if you think about your phone book, or you know, if you think about your you know your contacts list. Where have you got as home? Have you got it as your parents' address, or have you got it as like the house you live with your family now? And and I think there's always this interesting thing. Certainly for those of us who are are lucky to have our parents still around, my, my dad's house will always be home, not where I live. Like <laughs> this is this is my house. That's that's home, and it's 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 a quick exercise of oh okay yeah why have I done that? It's it's yeah. a weird one for me.
0: That's I've, that's a really really good good way of looking at it so folks are you listening right now if you if if you're not driving, if you're driving obviously wait until you you've got a safe place to stop or you've reached a destination or if you're just listening in the kitchen so just have a look at your mobile now what what have you got labeled as as home or the equivalent of home is it your abode where you live now with your family or is it somewhere else that's a really really good that would make a really good geographical inquiry i'd think about the sense of place a sense of identity is like where is home for you are you removed from home or are you at home
1: and and I think uh, I've I've found um, returning home is an interesting experience. So oh. when I grew up in Birmingham, um, for whatever reason, I can't really remember why it was, but for whatever reason, I didn't learn to drive at 16, 17. I, I learned to drive much later. I, I learned to drive when I, when I moved to London when I was, you know, early 20s. And I can't remember why. I, I, maybe it wasn't that important to me or maybe I didn't feel like I had the money, whatever it was at the time. But my perception and construction of place in Birmingham is based on public transport, walking or getting lifts with my parents because that's how yeah, yeah, that's yeah. how I experienced Birmingham. I left home to go to university and then life happened and I learned to drive. But when I go back now as an adult to visit my parents and I go in my car, I'm like, oh, but that... that... That was hours away, wasn't it? It's only taken me 10 minutes to drive here. Gosh, that's that's miles away, but it's only five minutes in the car. What's happening? And my construction of place and scale is so weird. It's so jarring for me to go back as a sort of adult, in inverted commas, in a car and experience this interaction in a way that, like, it just is not not how I experienced it as a young boy growing up, and, and it's not what i remember it's yeah
0: yeah that's really fascinating i so i because i i've got a similar experience to you in terms of time where i've now spent more time of my life most of my life living in norfolk and either in or around norwich than i have back in back in in essex and, and and in northeast london um so but my my identity is that home for me will always be, and even though I don't live in Norwich at the moment, home for me will always be now the city of Norwich because I feel that that's where the core of my identity was formed, and I have very little association back with where I'm from now. I mean not not because not because my parents have moved out of there where we where I grew up, but. It, that place just seems so alien to me now i mean there was one one occasion where i mean like you said like walking around uh harlow you know was and biking around it was one of the things i used to do all the time as a kid all the time as a kid it's a huge spread out area because of it was a it was a new town so uh for the population of eighty thousand people that it has it was actually really spread out it took you quite a while to walk and cycle yeah. places but it was a joy to do so but now, whenever I go back there in in the car or something like that, it just it feels so different. And the last time I went back there, I just well, obviously I've rec- quote unquote recognized the place, but I didn't feel it was my place anymore. And things were just flashing past without very little recognition or very little identity for me.
1: I, I think it's an interesting one when you start when you start to kind of unpick it like roots are a really interesting construction. So my Mm. wife is Canadian and she now has spent more of her life in the UK than she did growing up in Canada.
0: Yeah, same with my wife, yeah.
1: When she's in the UK, she sounds Canadian and doesn't feel like she's here. And when she's in Canada, she sounds British and doesn't feel like she fits in Canada anymore. And there's that kind of if you've lived in two places or you've had two big experiences or shaped your life in a binary, I suppose, as opposed to people who've lived in 15 or 16 locations, where do you sit in between? What's the, what's the, what's the transatlantic equivalent for you? Like you sort of neither one nor t'other in, in terms of geographic location It's just such a weird, just such a weird idea of experience and, I don't think I sound. People on the podcast will agree or disagree. I, to <laughs> me, I don't have a strong Birmingham accent anymore. Um, when I go home after a couple of weeks or a couple of days, even speaking with my family, my Birmingham accent comes back, and I sound more yeah. and I do now. When I first go back, I sound posh. They're like, oh, didn't. <laughs> and it's And it's that strange thing about it. so much of your identity is wrapped up in place accents. Yeah. You know what's familiar and what's not, what you know or what you don't, and all of those things. So so odd, so yeah. odd.
0: I think for, if if you're really intrigued by what David is saying here, folks, you should go back and listen last to last year in season two when I spoke to uh, Louis Viz, um, who is now. I do apologise, Louis, if I if I remember this wrong, but Louis is was born in Belgium to a I think French mother and a British father. I think and he talked about this kind of like th- this feeling where no nowhere seemed never really seemed to fit in anywhere go yeah. goes goes to visit england and you know he he doesn't fit cuz the british culture and the french culture is there's some overlap but mostly it's very very different so he doesn't feel fully british when he's in england doesn't feel fully french when he's in france or belgium and it's just such an interesting thing and and you're right like the experience with your with your wife and and my wife you know, my wife from minnesota she has the very same Uh, feeling like she she goes over there they they can they think her accent is diluted whereas she talks to my parents here they can say well she's got an American accent
1: it's it's so bizarre you know both of us will have worked with young people and in schools who've had so much more challenging experiences than that indeed you've moved 15 or 16 times because of your parents work or you've moved because of major upheavals in life or or you know you've you've fled serious situations that you want yeah. to be away from and it's that it's that sort of construction of identity and place and sort of diaspora i suppose like where where do you belong where how are you stretching across the spaces um and how do you put roots down that i think yeah, yeah it, it's an odd one it's why human geography for me has more uh, more questions than answers
0: (laughs) that's that's and if you're a geographer that's completely fine that's uh, that's our uh, that's our magic that's our spark our muse um yeah i I think you've hit the nail on the head and thank you for uh illustrating that for so eloquently you know if i'm thinking because one of one of the groups of students i work with for my day job is um military kids so kids with from military families and they do get pulled from pillar to post which is one of the reasons why they're part of our strategic outreach program because they don't they they have a it's really interesting they have a very strong identity within their within their family unit as a military child as a child of a military family but outside that bubble they're all over the place they they they're so they feel so disconnected and of course that most certainly, um, I wouldn't say interferes, but it certainly disrupts. You know their their education. They've because of the, you know the lack of stability and consistency. Some kids have been um, taught on the base that their family is living yeah. on. Some kids. Then go into mainstream education. It's a completely different experience. I mean, if if here in this part of the country we have so we have a lot of American military bases, air bases, you know, and some kids come out of that for the first time. They've come, they literally come out from an American school system in an isolated base into a British public school system, and they're just completely thrown out. Um, So, and then as you say, you extend that to young people who have got, you know, exceptionally challenging circumstances, like refugees and asylum seekers. They've come in, and their identity. They well they've been ripped away from possibly where what their identity is their their sense of self and i think that's where we need to be a little bit all as educators a little bit more mindful and we and can and use our own little experiences there david like you say you moving to uh southeast yeah, london yeah. and feeling ooh, and, this is it,
1: <laughs> you know we when in the last in the last few years and and i think We'd all recognise this as as practice, even if we don't necessarily all want to to recognise the philosophy or or agree with the intent behind it. I think there has been uh, a sort of revised focus on curriculum and curriculum journeys in in school geography and the discipline of geography. Where are we going? How is this sequenced? How are we getting the best out of the learning? What is yep. the story that our curriculum is is telling? And we assume underneath that that someone's going to hear the whole story and be able to appreciate the whole story because they've been with it from the beginning.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think one of the things that's really important for us to remember is some people are coming in at Chapter 4 of this, some people are coming in at Chapter 6, some people will be with us for Chapters 1 through 4, but then they're going to go and join someone else's story at Chapter 5. You know, and, and... and when we talk about hearing different voices and hearing different stories and how does our curriculum support that, what, how, how do we, how do we tell our stories for those who are just coming to the map? You know, how do, how do we, how do we include everyone in that way? Not just, not just those who were with us from when we said once upon a time, you know, how, how do we tell the whole story? And I think, geography is really good at that geography is really good at at an, a non-linear discipline there isn't one right way to tell our story there isn't one an only one sequence and if you weren't here when we said once upon a time then you won't understand what's going on you can pick it up you can interweave and you can you can add your own story to it that's one of the reasons i think geography is always so good. Is always so powerful. It, it allows us to have these conversations with people and share their experience and share their stories. And uh, you know,
0: and so, no, and no person is a blank slate either. No, no. no young person is a blank slate. You know, especially at secondary school when, well, I, 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 my my oldest is almost nine. My youngest is six, and I'm just thinking of already the amount of wealth of world experience that they have. And how they've interpreted that experiences and stuff like that. They are not going to go into high school with a, as a blank slate. And I think, I think we um, the not not so much individual teachers, but I think you know the way that the the curriculum systems are set up. Some I think need to be a bit more malleable to that. But it's it's challenging. It's difficult. It's not easy it's not easy at all so we you know and we're not a lot of people know i bark on about you know uh, equality diversity and inclusion but uh, i also know it is not an easy task but that should be the, the joy of the challenge really and i've i enjoy learning new things and and seeing different interpretations of the things that i already didn't know to get me another uh, point I mean, of I
1: view think, i think i uh- forgive me i think it's mary myatt but it may well be claire hill i'm i'm back but (laughs) there's a there's a lovely thing about curriculum is an ongoing conversation yeah it's an ongoing conversation what what have we had what have we heard what do we need to hear next and how do we keep that conversation going it's not a lecture it's not a once and done that's it you've got it now download go and do what you want with it it's a conversation um and and you know I think that's I think that's true of geography. Geography is a conversation. How how is my place influencing your place? How is my experience influencing yours? What what's our shared understanding? What what does that mean? And and so what you know? Um, geography is it, it is a great conversation.
0: Yeah, and both those two individuals that you mentioned and and like um, are very worth a look at, folks. If you're an educator at all, really. Um, I know on Mary Myatt's website. Um, there is a fantastic blog series, you know, where you've got guest bloggers as well as um, things from, from Mary herself. And uh, it's just definitely worth, worth looking at. And I'll put a link in the description for those kind of things. Um, Segway in a bit from what we're talking about into a bit more about yourself now. You know, uh, you said here that you love getting to know new, uh, lots of different environments, landscapes and exploring new spheres. And you, yeah. you tell about this, um, this one in your first school that you, ha- you were lucky enough to have uh, a trip out to North Africa. I mean yeah. that must have been outstanding. I mean,
1: terrifying, I, but but yeah. Outstanding. Tell us um, about that. <laughs> so, yeah, we we um as as a school, uh, taught a hot deserts and arid environments unit at at sixth form. Um, it was on the old AQA. Um, oh God, is it the old AQA twenty thirty spec? And then we, so. we, we picked it up and, and, and took it to the Cambridge International A-Level as well, which had a deserts unit. Both, both fantastic specifications, really, really great. Um, and I think we, as sort of British geographers, we're comfortable with our rivers and our coasts. If we're feeling like we want to push the boundaries a little bit and explore a different sphere, we'll go to the cryosphere and we might think about glaciation, because obviously there's glacial relic landforms in the UK. But we don't often, you know, I think deserts is the least popular option at all A-levels. I think it's the one that that people choose least. Um, but we loved it. The the students loved it. We had a great time with it. The connection to rivers was really strong. And actually, if you if you've done rivers... You'll recognise loads of the desert because it's there's a lot of there's a lot of equifinality there. There's a lot of stuff that looks the same. Um, but at Easter, first week of the Easter holidays, we'd fly out to Tunisia. Can't imagine doing it now. Uh, we'd fly <laughs> out to Tunisia for the week, and we would um, get in four by fours, and we would drive across the deserts, and we would go up into the mountains, the foothills of the Atlas, and then we'd come down across um, across Shatt el towards the northern sahara all the way down to uh places you would know and love kit um i have been to moss Isley, the set where it was filmed wow we used to stay in the in the village of tatooine in tunisia it's <laughs> a real place they named the planet in the movie after the village in tunisia because
0: that's I did where, not know that.
1: That's that's where Lucas and his crew stayed. So the, the set for most of the kind of Moss Isley and the desert scenes in Star Wars were all filled in southern Tunisia. And um, when the crew finished, they left them there as a thank you and they were staying in the nearby town of Tatooine. All the hotels were full of Star Wars cast and crew um, for the filming and they'd drive out to the sets in the morning, they'd do their shoot and then they'd come back. And it is the least successful tourist destination you have ever been to in your life. Because the entire village of Moss Isley is there. All of the stuff. So it's it's fake walls and things. You can go mm. into the cantina, but there's nothing behind it. That was on a separate set on a soundstage stage and all that kind of stuff. So the entire thing you can walk around, it looks like the village of Moss Isley. It's amazing. But there is not a fence, there's not a gate. There's not a, a charge to get in as a tourist. There's not a single like um gift shop or marketing experience. There's no guy wandering around in a costume dressed up to let you have your photos taken. It's empty. No one goes there. It is one of the least touristy tourist destinations you will ever go to in your life. You're just driving across the thing, you're in the middle of the desert, you park, and there's a Star Wars village, and you're like, hang on. <laughs> What happened here? Um, I have also been to the uh, the troglodyte dwelling in slightly slightly north of that. Um, the troglodyte dwelling where they filmed the uh, the family home on Tatooine is in a different place. It's not in the same village. It's in it's in some of the cave territories. But yeah, deserts. I'd never been before. I am uh, a redhead, so sun and me are not normally good. <laughs> um. But there's something vast and beautiful about them. And there's something spectacular about the flatness of the the salt plains. There's something beautiful about the kind of endlessness of the sand seas. And there's something so, so dramatic about the kind of incision landforms and the waddies and the gorges and that kind of stuff. It's just, yeah, I just, just loved it. Just loved it. And I, I, I don't know why I was, I was not expecting to, but, yeah, special.
0: Move over New Zealand and Lord of the Rings. In comes Tunisia and Star Wars. I did not know. I knew, I knew that that it was filmed on long on location, but I did not know about the whole Tatooine thing, and that's just incredible. Hi folks, a chance for you to recharge your brew, but also a polite prod to remind you that it's so easy to support this podcast. Simply liking, sharing, rating and reviewing means that it will get on more people's radar. Also, there are a few links down in the description which may be of mutual benefit. Please do check them out. I can't, you know, I can't remember. I know, I know how I got hold of it. I actually have a Tupperware of uh, Sahara and Sand. I've okay. never been to the Sahara. Um, and it was given to me by, uh, I can't remember who, but it was an, a stu- an ex-student of mine went to the Sahara and with the family uh, on the holiday and things like that. And I actually brought home with them some Saharan sand. I'm not sure whether it's legal or whether ha- how you, or what, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's lots of the stuff. I mean, but yeah, anyway, sure. but um and folks, this is no word of a lie. The first thing that this, I, I, I can't, it's so sad that I can't remember the, the name of the, of the young person, but I certainly remember the experience. They come up to me and they, they gave me this top t- 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 where They said, you can have this. I was like, Oh my God. Wow. Saharan Sand. And then the first thing that they said was, um, before you, bef- yeah. Open it and touch it. Yeah. Open it and touch it. I was like, I know well, right now. Get... I was like,
1: yeah, I know what you're going
0: to say. I am like oh my god it is like talcum powder yeah. it's so fine and soft
1: soft yeah especially especially as you go towards the sort of hyper arid bits of the sahara so obviously sahara is huge laterally and and longitudinally you know it's it's massive but mm. as you go towards the hyper arid stuff the the fineness of the dust particles is unbelievable and you kind of you know we talk about making sense of the real world it's one of those things that once you've been to the sahara and felt how fine that powder is you understand why it ends up on your car in the uk sometimes when the dust streams come up all the solar
0: solar panels which need a clean
1: (laughs) and, and you can kind of just about wrap your head around the fact like i don't know if you've ever been on a holiday in the canaries but there's times in the canary islands when the dust storms in the Sahara. Kick up enough dust to cause dust storms in the Canaries it's only oh, 90 yeah. miles yeah. off the coast of Africa. Yeah. Um. But the Saharan dust will nourish and feed large chunks of the mid-Atlantic, but they'll also feed bits of the Amazon because it will be carried across oceans. Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, okay, right. Uh, but you you touch this stuff and you're like, oh, I see why now. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is it, it's like melting in your hands. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's funny you say that because that is exactly how I how I um used to use that stuff. I used to say to the, when I used to say what well, how are we going to get you know there was a few times when we were teaching it, it was really hazier because of the Saharan sand, and I and I was like I've got this stuff this is brilliant. I was like right right folks here we go and I I, I tipped some of it in a different because t- of course with well, the k- kids in their hands and fingers didn't want to so I, I put it in a little I said right pass that around and give it a feel and they were all like oh my god I said right and that is why if you look outside you see it's a little bit of a tinge outside and things like that and it's and you know you've got a bit of looks like grime and dust on your cars but that's actually saharan sand and now you can understand why it is so easily carried in the air for thousands of miles because of that and and experiences like that both as an educator and as a learner are are basically the things that blow your mind and like, like you did with the, with the Royal Institute lectures when you were, when you were younger, um, uh, when I always bump into kids, they always remember certain things, you know, yeah. one, they remember the, feeling that Saharan sand. They remember me doing the, the earthquake and volcano simulation and yeah. stuff, stuff like that, you know, not, so, and they, they even remember me taking them outside into the car park to look at weathering and erosion and potholes. So <laughs> it's just that, that, that tangibility. Seen-
1: the one that my students will remember is my obsession with Earth North School. Yes, so I'm to move on to this. <laughs> and, and, my, and my constant ability to be distracted in almost any lesson to, <laughs> to, to be able to talk about that or use that. And yes. again, that's, you know, it's just that brilliant example of actually look, you know, we can use this thing and watch the Saharan dust being kicked up live across the across the thing. We can track it. We can follow it. We can look at all this kind of stuff. And it, you know, that's the. The, the joy of geography is the same as the joy of a load of teaching. It's it's taking something that people thought they knew and showing them a difference and, and bringing them a different awareness to it and saying, well, actually, why yeah, okay, it is a little bit hazy. It is a little bit cloudy. There is some sand on your car. Why? Where did that come from? Like, his <laughs> yep. beach. And and just just watching that, that person's understanding of the world expand a little bit is brilliant.
0: Yeah. And... And it, it's a fantastic way of actually getting young people, or anybody, to understand how we're interconnected with other place in the world. It's yeah. like when you ran your finger over your when you got in the car and you were like, "What's this on my fingers?" To come to school today, you are touching a bit of the Sahara, and it's, it's and then they're like, "Whoa!" And you
1: start and you start messing with because I think humans. We are aware of ourselves, and we are aware of our impact and limitations and we really struggle to step outside of that you know that that thing in the Sahara why why is that there? Well, that was laid down when it was an ocean well, when was it an ocean? well, it was an ocean here, and you know you, st- you start adding weird kind of hang on what you know those moments you get them on I think there's a reddit thread somewhere of stuff that feels like it shouldn't have happened at the same time, but it does. <laughs> Oxford University started teaching students three hundred years before the formation of the Aztec Empire. Uh. You know, and and like, well, okay, so here we've got the White Cliffs of Dover. When those things were laid down, what was going on in the planet, we had tropical oceans, Britain was significantly further south, and dinosaurs were running wandering around. Like that ability to kind of step outside your own time scale, your own conception of what time even is what it's like one of those threshold concepts once you've broken that circuit in your brain you can't put it back yeah you can't go, oh yeah 70 years that's fine that's all the that's all the time i need to worry about you've broken that in your brain now you can't put magical
0: it back. it's yeah. a magical moment yeah yeah so let's come back to novel school i, I don't mind talking about novel school for about five or so minutes um, because it is a free it's a free uh, platform and i know you you are its cheerleader and champion. See, like, look, like, just the smile on David's face when I mentioned it, folks. It was like, whoa! So as as David's like, I'm gonna get it up. So as David's just playing around and getting out, right? So, folks, we're recording this on the first of June, right? And I know what a lot of people around the United Kingdom are thinking today. And if you're in another part of the world, for end of May, June, for what the climate we should have around about this time, it is freezing, right? It is freezing. But how can we explain that? So you go into this thing called No School, folks, and you have this beautiful near real-time animation of the wind currents, right? You could, And there are other things you can do. I'll let David explain. But you can see that right now in the United Kingdom is a stream of wind coming down from uh, north of the North Sea, uh, where the boundary of the North Sea and the Arctic uh, Ocean, um, funneling its way in between Scandinavia and... And Iceland, and it's bringing this chilly air down, and it is cooling us down for this time of year. I mean, I can go on about this forever as a meteorologist, but, um, but David, I know you are an absolute cheerleader for no school, and I think people should go ahead and explore it. Go on, give us your highlights.
1: I I think the reason to explore it is because it's it's another one of those things in in what we're very fortunate to do that makes visible something that otherwise is really difficult. I can say to you that temperature changes across the planet, but if I show you a map of that live, it's different. I can say to you that temperature changes with altitude through the atmosphere, but if I show you it actually changing as we go up, it's different. I can say to you, well, that's what an air mass theoretically does and give you that you know as soon as i've said that geography teachers will have the classic five arrows on a map pointing yes. at, turning polar maritime in their head and all that sort of stuff but but there's a difference between looking at it and, and seeing what it looks like and how that interacts with real world stuff in swirly messy technicolor um and and the the ability to kind of transform bits of your teaching with technology and and the way that that's been done, I think that, I think it's 2014. Cameron Bacario puts that puts that together, and it, it's constantly updating with live information. You can go back through a load of history. So if you've if you've got a great event that you like, you can go to that time in history and watch Hurricane Katrina evolve over the Atlantic, or you can watch the Beast from the East, or, or whatever it is that you want mm. to study. But you can you can unpick it from multiple layers. So you can go and look at what the jet stream was doing on that day. You can go and look at, you know, what what were the sea surface conditions for the Hurricane Katrina. You can go and look at what were the temperatures across Central Europe from the beast from the east. And you can really just, it's, it's GIS for the weather and it's a way of making it just come alive in a way that you can't when you go outside and you look because the atmosphere is, too big our view of it too narrow and it evolves too slowly to see it happening in a classroom context like i can't go outside and speed the weather up if i if i could stand on top of a balcony and look out and watch the passage of a depression brilliant but i
0: can't so um this is the next best thing i think it's it's fascinating and yeah as so and as you were saying about the different layers i mean they've added so much more over the years have gone by because when it first started up it was pretty much just wind patterns and then they've just added layer upon layer and that's the thing as well folks as david just said it's it's the layering of it so when you when you go into the air mode um and you've got all these wind patterns things like that but then you can change it from surface winds and you can go up and this is what some people don't realize is that you don't actually when you go up into the atmosphere you don't measure quote-unquote height in the atmosphere in meters or feet you actually measure height through the atmosphere in pressure um that's some that's actually meteorologically a more accurate way of of going up into the upper atmosphere so so you can come up to so when you get up to roughly about the 500 to 250 hectopascals of pressure in in height in, in atmosphere you get into the area of where the jet stream is and then you can see how the uh, the jet stream is pulling air down from the Arctic and then it's kind of shuffling its way in the surface. Then you've got the drag of the surface. We call it the Ekman spiral, which is where the surface drags the, the air in different directions. It's just wonderful. But yeah, you can look at wind, you can look at currents, you can look at waves, uh, ocean patterns, chemical traces, particulates. Even if it says, says space, now what that does if you click on that, it's getting you to look at the near real-time image of the visible aurora. Yeah. I was like, was, like that was recently then, added. And the and biosphere, it's just, you know
1: we're, we're in a position where when i grew up as a as a young teenage geographer we had a textbook and if we were really lucky our physical geography teacher would draw some excellent diagrams yes. on the overhead projector um, yes. and, and you know he had his projector reel and a and a little uh, projector marker and that was it that was how we learned physical geography and that was how yep. we learned geography stuff you know um if we were really lucky someone would wheel in a tv with a video player attached
0: yeah play oh my god <laughs> um,
1: you know, you talk about this stuff that is now on fingertips. You know, anyone can get to it. Anyone can open it. It's a free thing. It's on a browser. You're talking stuff that when, when we were growing up and learning geography would have been classified. Like if you were special forces or if you were um, in the in the intelligence business, you might have access to this kind of satellite data. But no one else did. And, and that sort of um, the spread of technology has been really interesting in the teaching of geography, I think um and you see uh, you see it in a bunch of things so um i've always been fascinated with aviation i've always been fascinated with infrastructure and transport and shipping there's websites now flight radars the aviation one i forget what the marine equivalent is but you can track the position of every live ship in the world you can track the position of every live plane in the world and there's just this wonderful experience you can have of here's what the jet stream is um here's where the airplanes are flying over the atlantic explain uh, you know the distance from London to New York is the same as the distance from New York to London. Why is one a six-hour flight and the other an eight-hour yep. flight? Let's have a look. You know, yep. just just that ability to connect is is super fun, um, and and the technology puts it at your fingertips in a way that's um, amazing. Really, you know, you, if if you'd have if you'd have shown that. 20 years oh ago my God. you literally yeah. blown people's minds and you could have put that in a university in a university experience and people would have had their minds blown by it and now totally. it's just commonplace totally. it's just there isn't it
0: yeah and i'm very envious of folks who are still in the classroom really because there's there's all especially you know for for all for all the ills and issues and problems and disparities that covid had exploited and and exposed should i say sorry you know the disrupt the positive nature of the disruption through technology and stuff like that. I, I wish I was still in the classroom because there is so much, I'm, I'm thinking of all the different things I used to teach and how I taught them. And I'm thinking if I was back in the classroom now and had those tools available to me, it would just be so incredible. I mean, everything from having someone zooming from the other, other, other platforms are available folks, you know, zooming in from another part of the planet to talk to the kids, uh, art Q and A's and stuff like that through to using things like No school and these trackers. It's just been, wow so uh quite envious of all you like if if you know send us a tweet 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 coffee jog pod um and they are Dr. and tell us what you how you've been using technology in your learning uh but definitely definitely check out novel school if if you've got any time at all check it out okay david i've got one last thing to do before we before we end off because we're already getting uh short of time is uh spilling the beans then We've got a few things here. Uh, you and you said here that uh, you you uh, used to teach swimming before you taught geography. you yep. learned to fly before you could drive. True. and um you 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 love reading novels, particularly uh, the a huge fan of the Golden Age crime novels. I'm not quite sure which of those three we should pick up on. <laughs> I don't know Ping, pick, pick
1: whichever you want. Uh, <sighs> I, think, I think some of those are some of those are less interesting than others, to be honest. Oh, um, I don't know i think i think like like your kids i grew up swimming a lot and and doing a lot of swimming and, and bits and pieces um and for me uh the logical progression when i was 16 was to go and be a pool lifeguard as a part-time job that was easy that was like i could swim i was comfortable in that pool that was great but being a pool lifeguard's not a fun job because you spend half your time on poolside and half your time being a sort of dog's body <laughs> as soon as i hit 17 i trained as a um, as a qualified swimming teacher. So yeah, um, I that was how I earned my money. That was how I, I paid my way through university and and kind of made money to to get through that early part of my life was very much um swimming teaching. And that was my first instructional methodology. And the first time I ever got taught to teach was on a swimming instructor's course, ASA swimming instructors course. Um and they started off by going, Right, who knows how to juggle? <laughs> <So I started laughs> going, oh, you are <laughs> why are we doing this? I thought we were here to learn how to do swimming. Um, <laughs> But it was a really, really practical 30 to 45 minute, the entire cycle of skill acquisition. Who knows? Okay, let's split you in half. Modeling, um, breaking down the skill, building up component parts, deliberate practice and correction and coaching, like the whole thing in 45 minutes. Like this is how you teach. Done. Um Oh, OK. <laughs> right. Uh, now we're going to do now we're going to go and do that in the pool. Who can do butterfly? Oh, OK. Um, and, and yeah, it's just a really uh, an, um, unbelievable introduction to the world of teaching and the world of very strange experiences. I don't <laughs> know. I don't know if you've ever been to a mother and baby swimming class that's been led by an 18-year-old boy who didn't know that he was going to be doing that and therefore hasn't (laughs) done his homework on nursery rhymes. But (laughs) as the person on the other side of that pool, let me tell you, it's pretty embarrassing. Shall we also do nursery rhymes? Let's not. Let's just just try splashing and learning how to swim. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, there was that.
0: Um, Now, wait a minute. I want to stick up... Stick up for you and for other folks. To do that. So when I was a kid, and I used to go to, you know, and uh, people of our age will remember like the old Butlins and Pontins and all that kind of stuff, right? Holiday parks. I used to, I used to adore having those little holiday park swimming clubs because the people who yeah. used to run them were, were like six formers, undergrads, or something, you know, of that age group. And like, like as children and as young young kids, you're bes- you're actually besotted by them. You, they could do anything they like, and they. They could not be embarrassed in your eyes. In your eyes. They were so cool. They were amazing.
1: I I was pretty embarrassed in my eyes. I don't know know what the mums or the babies thought. i know what i thought and it wasn't it wasn't wow i feel confident and cool here yeah so you got um, you
0: got a little tiny kit going oh this is my teacher is so cool was so brilliant and then they're probably going back to their dorm afterwards Goes. Like, oh my god i can't believe i just did that oh i don't know the wheels
1: on the bus uh, i wasn't ready yeah a lot like that <laughs>
0: I love it. Oh, brilliant. Okay, then, David, let's uh, tie this all off now with uh, we are all geographers. And I'm going to – and it's so interesting that you bring up – and this is actually coming full circle now because you bring up the Royal, the Royal Institute uh, Science Christmas Lectures. Yeah. Um, and we're going to end with someone who has given a Royal Inst- a Science Institute Christmas Lecture because um, last week I, I spoke to uh, Professor Chris Jackson. Amazing. Yeah, what a wonderful, wonderful human being! And uh, so, of course, he 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 did. I, f- I think it was, was it twenty twenty one's Christmas lecture. I think. Yeah, um, he was,
1: he did he? He did the Earth series, and I think yeah. Helen Shirtsky did the. That's the right. Earth series, and I can't remember who did atmosphere. We're so but sorry. I, was, I should the, know that one because a series of them in in terms of our, our changing climate and his right. his on the rock cycle and the kind of Earth and and geological background was amazing. Yep. Yeah, he's. He's a pretty inspirational guy and, and his science is incredible, but him as a human being and the and the, the challenges and the adversity he's had to overcome in terms of just being himself in science yeah. and, and and bringing that weight. I don't know how he does it. I don't well, know how he does it I'll tell it.
0: you what. Last I mean it's you know, it's a joy speaking to the likes of, of, of yourself, you know, and I love geeking out this and, and like with Chris last week, it was just oh, what an absolute pleasure one absolute yeah. pleasure but um so now you are now forever linked to him because he okay. is giving you a word for you to talk about for 30 seconds right okay and um good as a as the good geologist that, that geoscientist that he is he's gone yep. for the word granite
1: granite
0: Yep. so he wow. wants you to talk about granite for 30 seconds uh david and uh you can the trouble is of course as someone who's uh Especially if you're a fit educator, you're like, okay, where do I bleed and start? It's not a case of, I don't know what to sort. It's like, where do I start? But you've only got 30 seconds.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to talk about the remarkable in the everyday. Go for it. I think granite is one of those things that we all um, probably encounter more than we expect. For some of us, it's on our bathroom worktops or it's in our kitchens or it's in, you know, public spaces and on fronts of buildings. And it sits there and it looks pretty and you kind of go, oh, yeah, that's that's fine. It's it's decorative and it's whatever, you know, you see it on countertops or you see it on paving stones. And yet it's one of those things that as soon as you start unpicking, how did it get to be that way and why is that that way? it unpicks that irreversible change in your brain. It's that moment of, okay, that called from what? Where did that come from? How did we get that there? Why have we all of a sudden decided that we're going to polish dead volcanoes and it's going to be the ideal kitchen surface. <laughs> like, like, cool. Okay. Um, yep. yeah, it's that, it's that oddness of humanity. I think the, the remarkable in the everyday, if an alien came down to earth and said, sorry, the bits of the dead volcano that you've got on your kitchen worktop there, what's, what's that about? You'd struggle to make that connection, obviously, until you really started to unpick. OK, well, what do we mean about hardness? And what do we mean about resistance? And what do we mean about crystalline structures and all of that? Same question with fossil fuels. I'm sorry, you, your most advanced part of civilization, you light dead dinosaurs on fire. <laughs> like, it's one of those things where yeah. the more you look at it, the weirder it is um So notice the weirdness. I guess is my thing about granite. It, this everyday thing that you take for granted that you chop your veg on, or you, you know, you go past in the John Lewis shop in the kitchen counter.
0: Notice what mm. in the everyday, and I'll, and embrace the intrusive thoughts that it brings. Oh. Sorry, I did it. Oh. I did it. <laughs> is it okay? Is it okay to go? Nice. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah oh i don't get to do my puns that often but when i do (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah very good one of one
1: of the one of the things i miss most about teaching is my pun stickers yes exactly you know what i mean like i'm sure other um other suppliers are available uh but i've (laughs) I've still got my whole set of larvally. And oh, I love and it. My, and my "you
0: rock" pun stickers. <laughs> that that there was never
1: a student that wouldn't secretly be like, "Yeah, all right, okay, we take that. It's a good
0: job. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like like people say to me, like, I, I've done a few talks, and uh, you know, and you'll do this a little bit with with, with it, uh, you know, teacher training and stuff like that. It's like, okay, so what's the difference between a good and outstanding teacher? And I, I feel like from now on, I should say, good puns. <laughs> Stickers? <laughs> stickers
1: and puns. Stickers and puns. Uh, well, I, if I'm honest with you, let's let's make a serious point out of that. Um, I think the answer of both stickers and puns and all of those things is not taking yourself so seriously. Embracing yeah. the geekiness, embracing the joy, embracing the bits that you like and finding fun and joy in it. I think that's the thing that makes the greatest teachers. I, I don't know whether that's correlated with outstanding or or judgments or effectiveness or efficiencies and it's not my place but I think it is the thing that makes the
0: the great teachers I think it makes the ones that you remember um absolutely you know one of my mantras is um is the is the quote about being a geek by Simon Pegg I'm not going to read it out now folks you can you can look it up yourself but it's it's one of my mantras in life um before I forget David you need to come up with a word for our next guest so you got something you want to Throw at someone for uh, obviously you can't throw granite because you've uh, just had that one, but <laughs> something a little less intrusive. Oh, stop it!
1: <laughs> <laughs> stop it! Um, I, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to go awkward um, from my des- from my deserts conversation earlier and throw the word equifinality out there. Oh but my goodness, I'm, nice! I'm, I'm I'm actually going to be kinder to to whoever <laughs> comes next, and I'm going to say synoptic what does it mean to you synoptic
0: okay good oh i I, wish you'd stuck with equifinactic though but okay (laughs) we'll go we'll go with we'll go with middle you've got got, okay if you want to i know i've got the power but but it's the guests (laughs) that make this (laughs) right david so um You've got a you've got a you've got a blog. You can definitely uh, uh, plug that. Um, you did it. You did it when we did the the short, but you can definitely plug that again. And also your Twitter feed and where people can find you. So yeah, plug away. How can we find you?
1: Uh, well, I'm always happy to talk to people about geography on Twitter at Dr Priest is the easiest way to get me. And I've got a blog that's pinned to that homepage. Um, I talk about geography. I talk about aspirations and how to sport candidates with UCAS and applications I talk about curriculum I talk about random stories and things that have inspired me so you feel free to feel free to follow feel free to have a read and if anything grabs you or if I can have a conversation with you that's helpful then please do get in touch I'd love to hear from you
0: yeah thoroughly recommended. and finally you want to say hi to anybody oh goodness um always the most difficult question on the podcast
1: i uh, it's it's a it's a high and a thank you to um Keith Phipps and Chris Jackson, who were the people that set me on the path to geography um without them, I wouldn't have done this, and I wouldn't have known how to do it. I had the pleasure to get to know them both as adults and and as one teacher to another teacher um to go back and say, Hey, do you know how much difference you made and that and that meant the world' Um, uh, to Mike Russell, who was my, my form tutor and, and helped me with the university applications. They were the people who started me down this path. Um, and always to family because without them, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do this. Um, you know, you, you can only do these things with the support of great people and, and those are mine. So, yeah
0: yeah well david um it's always a delight to chat to you uh i'm i'm it's i'm so happy that we've got to know each other quite well over the last year or two and uh, long may it continue so and uh, we'll um and folks we'll definitely be having david on at, back on at some point when another uh newsworthy item uh, comes on for another expresso geography so you'll be hearing from david again in the future no doubt so david thanks very much for joining us
1: thanks as ever kit pleasure
0: thank you so much for listening we hope you had fun if you haven't already done so please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favorite podcast app if you fancy being a guest or have any feedback follow us on twitter at coffee pod and send us a dm or you could email coffee and jog at geogramblings.com. until next time keep geogging.